Bruce back. thanks very much for joining us tonight. 1-800-723-8289. And uh, Mark Casella, you look like you wanted to make a uh, comment before the break, so uh, we'll send it to you. Oh, uh, you know, I, no, Bruce, I didn't have anything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> free chance, free okay. chance. Bruce, let me, let me going once, going twice. <laughs> Go ahead. Let me give Here. you an example yeah. of how I think a critical race theory can um, go overboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, here in Evanston, it's a very local example. Um, there has been a policy uh, for years of requiring tokens to use the beach. Uh, yes. You have you have to uh, if, right. even if you're an Evanston citizen, you have to pay a fee uh, and buy a token either on a daily or uh, a, a, a seasonal basis in order to use the beach. It's a usage tax. Now, recently in the city council. Uh, a new city council uh, as elected, and um, they, someone, one of the council people decided that uh, beach tokens are racist, mm-hmm. are racist, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, as a result, the uh, council uh, has eliminated the necessity of, of having beach tokens. In other words, there, there's uh, uh, weekends, and I think Mondays are free, mm-hmm. and you need right. them for the rest of the week, and. In a social media conversation, I challenged, um, how did you come to the conclusion that beach tokens are racist? They said, well, um, their use was started to uh, uh, you know, keep black people off the beach, and everybody knows that. Well, I've lived in this town for 40 years. Uh, I've seen plenty of black people at the beach. I've never heard it discussed among mm-hmm. black people right. that right. beach tokens are racist. And, um, and, and the person that was explaining this to me was white. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a woke white person okay. who is telling me what racism is, um, and and that that is, is, the is influence. That, is yeah. that really at the? Co- I mean, is that really at the core of all of these discussions all over the country? That if if you if you peel off the onion of wherever the public mm-hmm. uh, you know di- disturbances or or disagreements are, you're going to find a white liberal. You're not going to find a black person. Well, I, 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 and would, I don't mean I don't mean all. Obviously, you don't know all, but I, I mean, I would is, go is this far. the story? But yeah, but, but, no. but that's yeah. that's that's the yeah. influence of this, um, uh, uh, the downstream influence of right. uh, critical race theory. I don't think this person had the history. The person that was telling me had the history correct. They have reinterpreted the history, right? Uh, to through a lens that uh, fit their political purposes. Well, and let me give a little, um, you know, sort of flesh out of that is, you know, again, as a fellow resident um, who's been paying for beach tokens, um, one of the things that is a a very strong component of critical race theory is that if it is this premise that if there are disparities, disparities in outcomes, disparities in advantages or whatever that exist between Whites and basically all others, minorities, people, uh, indigenous, people of color, Mm -hmm. um, that those disparities are only a result of racism, Mm -hmm. that unequal outcomes are are proof of racism. And so if you dial it back a little bit and you give the response of, well— the original intent of the beach tokens was to keep all the all the Chicago residents 
um, okay. who were, found that their beaches were too packed or weren't as clean or nice right. as Evanston ones. Um, the, the, the idea is, you know, let's keep right. it to Evanston people who pay the Evanston taxes. However, the 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 woke um, response will come from an argument that there's a disparate impact because people of color or minority status are less likely to be able to afford the tokens. Okay, let me ask you this. And that that they do not have the same access because they don't have the same ability to pay regularly okay. like other Mark, people. I want to go I want to go to you just so yeah. we don't get bogged down in in, in yeah. politics. And we could. <laughs> and we could because we, we've got the panelists to do it tonight. But my question to you is um, define for the audience what you think woke means. Yeah, so th- so this is one of those terms that's uh, catching on, but for me, woke means um, a general sense of empathy that I can try to look at someone else's situation and and not just immediately project my own experience um, into that and assume that my reality is the ultimate truth. That uh, wokeness is simply stopping and asking a question. And, and really, it's about listening, listening to others. I mean, we're on a panel here um, uh, to varying degrees of, of privilege. And um, so where is that conversation happening? Wokeness is about listening to people and understand, trying to understand their experience. Now, it's being used as a pejorative mm-hmm. linked in with cancel culture and the idea that it's, it's a, akin to political correctness or an extreme form of where if I use the wrong word or if I say the wrong thing, then there's going to be a Twitter mob that's going to come and, and, and want to take me down. But wokeness at, at, the, at the heart of it, you know, in, in my feeling, it's, it's not about liberal or conservative. It's wokeness is simply caring about another uh, another person enough to listen to them and understand their experience or try to does it also mean that you're going to completely ignore those that disagree with you uh and and they and and they they may suggest that those that disagree with you are racist insincere i mean there's a lot of people who care about other people i wouldn't consider them a racist they may be born again christians and, and, and you may not agree with that because you may think there's a prejudice that comes with that degree of Christianity. Sure. No, I think I think it can go in both directions. I think people should listen to others uh, and have a dialogue and have a conversation. But the problem is that, you know, when you have a dominant, you know, a racial group that's dominant in a society, um, the, there's not an equal balance of power. So the, the people in power don't often listen to the oppressed. I disagree. And so I, I think that's where the, where the problem lies. Um, so because right. uh, if you talk to a person, you know, first of all, a person's not going to say, I am oppressed. <laughs> but if you find a person and talk to oh, them. Oh, you might. Um, I disagree they're, with that. They're, well, they're, they're, <laughs> all the time they're listening to figures of power, talking to them, telling them what to do, where they go, what they can't do, where where their rights end and where they begin. But it doesn't flow that other way if you're the dominant group. You have an autonomy and freedom of movement and power uh, that, that that people who are uh, oppressed in a society don't have. Stephanie Hitt is shaking yeah. her head. I, well, I dis- I disagree to an extent. Um, I mean, I think it's noble that you're trying to give a very sort of um, listening component to the meaning of woke. The the reality of woke it, of being woke is 
that it is it is used to enforce a political correctness. And we have when you talk about power, we are living in an age right now where the power um, of um, the flow of ideas, the expression of ideas and, you know, and and the control of people's voices that actually happen to be commandeered by the left, a left which is very, very focused on, um, you know, controlling the, the dialogue. And so what I have seen through, you know, my research and my extensive involvement over this last year dealing with woke culture and its effect in the academic world, in the high school world, is that it is used as a cudgel and uh, for conformity. So that if you do not agree, you are called out. And we just saw this recently with John Cena and the um, his apology to communist China. If you are not called out, it's not enough just to say, I'm sorry, or I express my point of view. You are called out for that point of view, and you are forced to apologize, and not just apologize, but then to you know, conform, conform mean, to okay. the dominating. Derek, okay. uh, and I'm a bachelor fan. I will confess this. Uh, that that is the perfect example of woke in action. What it really is in our society today. You mean okay. conformity, like the the Republican leadership kicking out <laughs> uh, 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 Liz, Cheney Liz Cheney for uh, speaking out against <laughs> well, Donald Trump? I mean, is that not conformity? Well, is that not trying to now, control as the a narrative? And control. Let's let let's 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 Is that not a form of controlling expression or or being penalized severely penalized, losing a leadership position right. for not conforming? Well, now here's the thing. Actually, the person who was most marginalized were the Democrats who went to silence Marjorie Taylor Greene and what so they have to do that, with Liz Cheney. They had that. Well, here's the thing, Liz Cheney spent all of her time denouncing Donald Trump and resurrecting her anger with what happened in January. She was not out there as a spokeswoman for political, for Republican viewpoints, Republican initiatives, Truth Republican isn't a Republican policies. viewpoint? No, she, but she her said job the party, is to promote the, party, the party's policies, the party policies and positions. She its back on truth But she wasn't doing her job. Right, well, well, let she me didn't go, do her job. Let me, let, let, me, let, let me come back to this, and then I want to get Mark. And by the way, yeah. our phone lines are open at one 800 723-8289. I hope they're open. Let's try them. 1-800-723-8289. If you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook, I understand we've had some technical issues with them. If you are watching or hearing this program or seeing this program on YouTube or Facebook Live, also give us a call. 1-800-723-8289 so we can get your uh, your opinions and we can also uh, tune you into our conversation because we do want to we want to test both right at the moment. 1-800-723-8289. Got a good, lively discussion going this evening. We'd like to add you to it. 1-800-723-8289. From coast to coast and border to border and around the world at beyondthebeltway.com. I'm Bruce Dumont. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. 
Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 14 clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees, it doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls. Not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. 1-800-723-8289. We're going to take a moment now and let each of our guests uh, introduce themselves. And we're going to start with Mark Casella, who's joining us via Zoom tonight. Mark, go ahead. ...of Humanities at Calumet College of uh, St. Joseph in Whiting, Indiana. And I'm the president and founder of the Pullman National Monument Preservation Society. Okay. And Stephanie Hitt. I am a... um activist and uh, uh, Republican, um, former Republican delegate based, based here in Evanston, Illinois. Um, and uh, in between political activism and carting four kids around, I have become very involved with a uh, research project addressing some of these critical race issues and looking, delving deep into the resources and alternatives um, to really understand this. And, and you can find some of that work on our website called kidswinloyola.com. Okay. And Derek Blakely. I am a native Chicagoan and a retired uh, network correspondent and Chicago television reporter. Uh, for the last five years before I retired, I was the political <clears throat> correspondent uh, for the CBS affiliate in Chicago. And now I am the contributing editor, a contributing editor uh, for a political. Um, Website, the Center for Illinois Politics. Okay. Let me ask you a question, and then we're going to get back to our topic. As you know, uh, the questionable uh, ethics of uh, uh, network journalists has been called to attention by the conservative movement in this country for the last, I'd say, 45 or 50 years. It has intensified during the the era of Donald Trump. Um, As someone who's worked in the TV business for 40 years, and and I will say, as someone who has observed you for many of those years, uh, I think you've always played it straight as a as a reporter. I mean, as a Facebook friend, I kind of know what your politics are, <laughs> but I don't think I ever knew that when I was watching you on TV. Uh, can you acknowledge what some conservatives see and hear when they watch network television that they feel that they are being? Uh, um, uh, disregarded and disrespected and uh, uh, that what they're listening to is uh, a a liberal interpretation of the news? That's a tough question to answer. Um, I think by and large, um, what you get from the reviled mainstream media (laughs) is mainstream news. I think you get uh, a factual uh, presentation and recitation of what had happened, what has happened. Um, especially uh, with the networks, more than the cable networks, uh, more than CNN or MSNBC. Um, I think, I think um, the Trump era, and I've said this here before, was a very trying time because um, you had a president who uh, distorted facts and, in fact, um, um, 
created alternative facts, which are called lies, uh, on a regular basis. And it was difficult not to point that out. And um, in the old days, you would never go to the extent of doing that because you didn't have presidents in that vein, even Republican presidents, conservative presidents. Um, But uh, the Trump era, I think, uh, to some extent, forced the hand. Um, let me let me and, let me stop and, you. One, one, but I would also say, yeah. you know, um, that we have uh, very vibrant uh, conservative media now, uh, Fox and OAN and Newsmax, and um, um, those are sources and voices uh, that uh, conservatives can turn to, um, which are, if anything, um, just as far to the right as. Uh, as uh, MSNBC is to the left. If you were an observer and you watched uh, the, 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 the network news on, on CBS, NBC, and ABC every night, uh, I am flabbergasted that they pick basically the same stories. Yeah. There's very little that goes beyond <laughs> what might have been in Section 1 of the New York Times or Washington Post, and they all tend to pick up the same story with this, with basically the same slant, which is a, uh, it, it's an anti-Republican, anti-conservative slant. That's the way I would see it. You may see it differently, but would you acknowledge that at least the selection of the stories is pretty? There's a sameness to that that may have led to the success of some of these alternate news sources. Yeah, but that's been true for years. I mean, that's been true for fifty years, and I think uh, so. There's partially, something. So there's something to it when the conservatives right. say it then. There's some truth to that. Well, I, the conservative complaints weren't the same 50 years ago. I mean, I don't, I don't think uh, to the extent that they are now. Yeah. Um, but I would say that it is a partially a result of, um, uh, you know, the people like us syndrome. The people who are hired to make those decisions are largely East Coast. Uh, they are uh, largely Ivy League. Uh, if they go to journalism school, they go to the same schools. And um, so it's they're kind white. Of, they're white. They're um, liberal. They're they're liberal. They're mostly male. Although in, now we have uh, some females who are running the whole uh, show. Are now at the top of uh, network new, news organizations. Uh, there's a black woman now running uh, ABC News, just appointed. And um, uh, but uh, it took a long time to get there. Um, but um, yeah, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't deny that. I mean, you can okay. look at the rundowns and look at the lineups and and right. uh, and make that case. Okay, well, that's that's a that's a good addition, Mark yeah. Casello. I want to ask you the same uh, same question. Would you offer the same uh, candid assessment that uh, Derek has just made, being from the so, other side? Uh, I would go even further. I I would say that the overall the commercial media. I I wouldn't say it, it's slanted as as you might say toward the liberal side. I just think it's terrible for our democracy. We have a very poor quality commercial media system. Um, occasionally they come through, but I think the point the, the point you're making, Bruce, is really important that if the gatekeepers of our national media are just spouting the same stories, network to network, mm-hmm. publication to publication, it's doing a disservice to our democracy. There, there's a massive volcano causing refugee displacement in Africa. And it's not covered. And I don't see it on any of the nightly news programs. Mm-hmm. Um, just just shocking. It's, it's abominable. And it's very narrow in its focus, our, our U.S. media. Um, 
but but I do think, you know, to your point, even at the opening of the show, which is why are certain conversations emerging now? Mm-hmm. It's because there's a democratization of media that's occurring and it's forcing conversations. It's, it's bringing issues into the culture that that maybe the, the commercial media is just not having this dialogue, but it's taking place in society. It's taking place in the schools where Stephanie's working. It's taking place in my classroom. Uh, it's taking place uh, in the independent media that's not funded by these commercial uh, entities. Well, what's interesting is that um, you're right. The alternatives are emerging because I think we all agree the mainstream, the traditional commercial forms of media just aren't serving the dialogue anymore. But um, I mean, go to a, go to a gym when they open up and look at the line of TVs across the, uh, uh, across the wall in a gym and you'll see they're all telling the same story at exactly the same time. But one of the things that uh, has really erupted, and I, I discovered this a little bit when I was on jury duty, and and you know, Derek, you may you may disagree, but the I would say the number one source of news for most Americans is social media. It's not even a traditional television, cable television form. That's part of it. No, I, I don't disagree. It, I mean, but it no. is, and, and, and it's people, not print anymore. No, it the, is social media. It is anything that you can get on the screen of this thing. That is where news comes from today. And uh, I was shocked um, that everybody does opinion. Uses it that way. Does opinion follow that? Opinion words, if you get, often if you replaces your, if news. You get your new, no, if you get your news mm-hmm. from your phone, right? Does does your formulation of an opinion? Come from that same phone that yes. is that's that's clicked into uh, a, a, a well, favorable. It, it does, and you know, in a bizarre way, you, you choose what opinions or versions of the news come to you right. on your phone. So there is this, you know, we are in this society where we're not all reading the same news, we're not all looking at the same stories, and um, and so. The dialogue is almost like somebody's talking here, you know, down here, and someone's talking up here. Um, There isn't that commonality. We just had this conversation the other night where, you know, there was a time in this country where everybody watched exactly the same shows at exactly the same time and watched exactly the same news anchors and read, you know, newspapers. And in a way, that seems like a lot of conformity. But those things were done in such a way they did not completely consume everybody's day and everybody's daily life experiences. But they had the same slant. I mean, many of conservatives them did, felt that that was more slanted because 50 years ago there wasn't a Fox They were News a smaller part of everybody's daily existence. And so what you heard oftentimes might only be 10% of the experiences and observations you've made throughout the day. Mm -hmm. Now, with everybody glued to this phone every single day, um, there is this, you know, idea that every part of your experience will in is going to incorporate media, opinion, news, politics, culture in a way that it's never done before. And so whoever controls those messages your Facebooks, your Twitters, your parlors, whatever, they actually have greater influence on your day, all day, than the the one-time 6 o'clock or, if you didn't catch it, the one-time 10 o'clock news. Do you agree with that, uh, Mark? No, absolutely. Um, it's the 
the commercial control of the media through the social media outlets and the algorithms that feed us the news. Right. You know, I have to go out of my way to find, you know, uh, alternate opinions. I, I watch Fox News Sunday. I'll, I'll go to Fox News on the radio and listen to it. I'll seek out alternative uh, conservative news sites because um, I want to hear the conversations that are taking place and what are the issues that are important. And so do we here every Sunday night on Beyond the Beltway for the last 40 years. That's our goal, a diversity of opinion delivered by bright, articulate people. We have that tonight, and I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly from Evanston, Illinois. I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back, and uh, we may be back a little early, so you may have heard that comment. But, but tell that story because, again, uh, part of that may actually have been on the air. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, you know, I'm going. We were just chatting, and we're going back to you know some of, some of this stuff is and, and the frustration with you know really examining these very very real Talk about your important Talk about issues. Your is um, you know sometimes we get into this as Derek said, everything is racist kind of analysis and. There was a, a conversation um, where uh, some uh, a teacher led the discussion. A, a kid came home and said, Mom, is our furniture racist? And she said, what? What do you mean? She goes, well, we were in a discussion, and, and we were asked to think, reflect on whether, our, whether or how our furniture reflected our, our family's race. So, and? And, well, you know, I didn't get all the answers of that. That didn't happen to my child. But I will say, uh, you know, my first thought was, well, I shop at Ikea, so I don't know what that means. But I feel like we go far. This, we is, go this far. is a hypocritical story. You think it's real? Yeah. You don't know if it's real, but you think you it's know, real. A parent shared a think, story uh, with me. You're smiling. Um, I, Have you got racist furniture at home? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it would look like. I don't know. Um, I, I think it's – I mean – Look, it, it's a it's a silly question right. uh, presented in that way. It may have been in a context that it made more sense in the classroom, yeah. and the the student didn't relate that. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, on its face, it's a it's a it's a silly question. All right. Let me ask right. you this: When we talk about this, and we're going to take calls in just a moment, when we talk about this, uh, you know, critical race theory, is this something again getting back to? Is this primarily? white liberals that talk about it? Is it young blacks? I mean, if we got together a, a group of, of African-Americans who are somewhere between your age, Derek, and mine, I think I got about 10 years on you, uh, would any of them talk about any of this? Or is this stuff that they know and they've lived their lives through it and, you know, they're, they're not going to spend, you know, the rest of their lives worrying about it because uh, they know you can survive it? 
I think to a certain extent it's generational. And mm-hmm. I think um, uh, there are people, particularly uh, under 30, under 20, um, who have grown up with some of these ideas percolating. And um, now they are in a position to uh, put them forth, whether it's uh, in a high school or in a, in a political arena. Um, and look, I'm not, you know, I'm not the person to uh, diminish American racism. I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not the guy that's going to do right, that right. Uh, in any way, shape, or form. But um, there is a point at which, uh, as I said, you can go too far and a point at which uh, words lose their meaning. The word racism loses its, its meaning. The word racist loses its meaning. And I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't want to get to that, uh, that point because there are plenty of legitimate ways in which those words are perfectly valid and perfectly useful and perfectly relevant to our society today. Mark, would you acknowledge that one of the reasons why this issue is has has gained a foothold, at least insofar as a public discussion of it, is that the people who are pushing it are younger, and because they're younger, they are a more attractive target for advertisers. So mm-hmm. companies that have uh, reputations to maintain, product to sell, they are worried about offending. They're young buyers, many of whom might be liberal. They might be woke. They might be black. They might be anybody. But they're, if they have to make a decision on who they're going to tick off, they would rather tick off the old fogey, be they black or white, who are of a demographic that's you know, post-60. And those people are, are, are given no respect by advertising at all. And that's why they put the pressure on the major corporations to, to, to buckle and go to their knee in supporting woke-related issues that are being pushed not only by 20 and 30-somethings, but the advertising agency, people who make the decisions of where money is spent, are basically people in their 20s or early 30s. Well, so that, that was a long setup there, Bruce. <laughs> Takes away. It's uh, my show. <laughs> uh, just yes. <laughs> but I think it's an important question. Yeah. Yes. Who's but, driving but this? Certainly uh, commercial entities are, are co-opting social movements. That's what's happening here. There, There is where young people are coming up and they're seeing true need and injustice in our culture and they're taking to the streets and they're organizing and there's people every day out there in their communities trying to address poverty and injustice and racism and police violence and gun violence and gang violence that's the real work that's happening on the ground now the media sees uh, sees an opportunity to to take those causes and those victories and turn them into co-opt them and turn them into some a product that they can sell back and associate themselves with a, a, a what's seen as a, a cutting edge or a more uh, enlightened group social movement um, that's gaining power. Um, so there is a new audience out there that's consuming it. But I think what's more important is there's real work that needs to be done and real injustice beyond what the corporate media is doing. Um, and so that's where my concern is. And critical race theory, again, is just a way to describe the conditions that, that are operating, and it's just a tool. 
um, that people can use to try to understand and communicate about why there's injustice. You know, substance abuse is happening in our culture. Why is it affecting some groups, not others? COVID-19 happens. Why is there a larger death percentage in communities of color? A question. How do we address that issue? How do we identify it? We, you know, it's, it's certainly... Um, worth addressing. And, and question, so a, a question. race theory is just a way yeah. to start to explain. Well, a, question, a question, is, just a, a question, a question to you. Uh, we've got to pause, but I want to ask Stephanie a question, but I don't want you to answer it. I want you to think Ooh, about it. Surprise. Think about it. And give right. me the answer at the beginning Hang of the on. second hour. My Hang question on. is, do you now represent, frankly, uh, uh, a Budinsky parent <laughs> who doesn't like the politics of what's being taught in the schools even though intellectually it may be correct, but it's not, it doesn't feed your political gain. And so yep. you've gathered all your friends and neighbors to try to make life difficult for those that are teaching it in schools and that you are just, you're a Budinsky, a Budinsky parent. That's the question. I got my your, answer. Your answer. You got five minutes to think about it. All I'm right. Bruce Dumont back shortly from Evanston, Illinois. You're listening and watching, hopefully, Beyond the Beltway. I'm Bruce Dumont. Some news is about their opinions. We believe the news should give you the facts without bias, so you can form your own. We believe in news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America to give you the information you need. Everyone calls it the news, but we'll actually deliver on it. Seven nights a week in primetime. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. News Nation. It's your news, your nation. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefit.
Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one -on -one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor in your window, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public service professors, and most importantly, plain speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Mark Casello, English professor at Calumet College of St. Joseph, former network correspondent Derek Blakely, and conservative activist Stephanie Hitt. I'm Bruce Dumont, 708-250-6844 is our phone number. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Nice to have you with us from coast to coast and border to border. And uh, we'll take some calls in just a moment. But uh, in hour number one, we have been talking critical race theory, what it means and why some people are so upset about it. And I asked uh, Stephanie Hitt, who is our card-carrying conservative, and she's very active locally here in Evanston, Illinois, uh, uh, to, to stop and to disrupt the teaching of critical race theory in a local Catholic school. And uh, I asked her before the break, uh, does she consider, or, or would, would uh, I guess, opponents of her mm -hmm. consider her just as a Badinsky parent who's sticking her nose and offering her political opinion uh, against a school board that wants to teach history straight and, and even— um, without a lot of politics and uh, being disruptive, organizing other parents to stand up and, uh, and, right. and shout for the rights of their students. And uh, so my question to you is, Badinsky or not? Well, this is not a hypothetical question right. for myself and other parents who have spoken up. We know, in fact, that we are, we're not just called Badinskys. We are called racist. Um, as people who don't even want to examine these issues. And we've uh, um, been told that we are disgruntled, angry, upset because Trump didn't win the election and all we care is about our politics and we don't like to be made uncomfortable and we don't want to have our white privileged world rocked by Any this. of that true? Any Not one single piece of it. Um, and here's the thing. And, I, you know, for listeners who've listened to me on this show, you know that, um, you know, I've, 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 I've written, you know, I, I, one of the things that has jarred most parents of all races and all economic situations about the use, how it's being implemented in the classroom, especially in the younger grades where students aren't as uh, sophisticated, is that it is... It is done in a wholly unintellectual, 
anti-intellectual way where it is presented, these, these issues are presented as facts and it is without any room for discussion or debate. So that is the first concern that most parents have with this, that how, how would you say, it, though, for example, Stephanie, let me, before yeah. you get to the sample, how would you react to people who may have heard you uh, utter those that defense on the air? And they would say, you know what? You're a group of parents. Mm-hmm. You have decided, as a, a parochial school, you've decided to spend quite a bit of money to send your kids to be educated. Right. And you expect those that are going to be educating them are, frankly, more knowledgeable than you and your husband on a particular subject. In this particular case, it is American history. Okay. What makes you and other parents, what makes you think that you're smarter than the teachers who have been to school and, frankly, may, not, may know a lot more about the subject than you do? Here's the question. The, the question is, um, it's not I know more and the teacher is teaching something that is wrong and accurate or whatever. It's the fact that children are coming home and saying, raising their hand, asking questions, presenting different viewpoints, maybe based on their experience, their own personal experiences, maybe on other books of history they've read or whatever. And those debates and criticisms, critiques are told that they are unwarranted. They are not allowed, that this is the point of view, and there will be no debate on it. That is the number so challenging one issue. The parents. It, it's challenging. It's teaching them it's, it's to in, challenge the parent and question and, the parents. Well, and when you pay for a school that pri- – and most private schools like to uh, present themselves as bastions of critical, rigorous critical thinking, discourse, discernment, debate, that, you know, we're a safe place where we can take an idea and attack it. All bad, all good marketplace. Here we go. And these kids all of a sudden are coming home and being told there's only one way to look at something and the and the other way or any nuance, any contextual concerns, any of those questions are themselves racist. That okay. silences discussion. And by the way, I'm quoting Robin D'Angelo when I say that. I'm not making this up. She makes it very clear in her, her presentations, that any discussion is itself racist. Her premise is very clear. She says, any disparities are based on either an idea that you think that people are infer- other people are inferior or that there is racism. So if you think that someone is inferior, then you've just proven B, it's all racism. That okay. is the only level of dialogue allowed in these now, classes. Now, let, let, let's go to, to Derek. Okay. Now, you don't have children in the school now, right? I do not. Okay. Yeah. But, <laughs> I don't have school-age kids. As, 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 as a Lucky. one-time parent, as a one-time parent, speak to um, uh, what I've just uh, articulated. And the, the, those many parents think that, that Stephanie is a Budinsky and it comes right down to the politics that is being taught to them or the interpretation of politics that's being taught to them is something that the parents don't believe in and they're paying the bill for their child to be educated. Well, the first thing, in a private school setting, um, you would think that parents would have more say 
over mm-hmm. uh, what is yeah. being taught um, because uh, you're paying for a service and you have certain expectations about what that service is. It's a parochial school. You have certain expectations about the religious education and certain expectations about um, the general curriculum as well. So it's a little different situation than it would be in a public school. In a public school, um, you assume that there is, you, you might give more deference as, as you were talking about, right. more deference to a teachers teacher. Teachers know more than parents. Uh, teachers more, know more than uh, the parents. And that um, it, you might assume that the curriculum is more acceptable to a wider number of people. You might. Right. Well, it's interesting because um, I think, Derek, you've kind of hit the nail on the head, is you would assume that in a private school, you would, um, you'd have, you would have more say, that, you know, you're, um, you're, or, you're or more Or at least that the administration would right. be more responsive. responsive. Yeah. What, and I just want to draw attention to the very, um, if you're entrenched in this whole debate, you'll, know, you'll re- understand what's going on at the Brearley School in New York City as well as the Grace School in New York City where a teacher and a parent both have publicly spoken out about their very, very, very expensive, very, you know, private schools and what they're finding is actually the opposite, that the schools are taking the position of you don't have to be here. You can go somewhere else. If you don't like what we're saying, then take your money elsewhere. So what is interesting in that conversation is what you think would be the easy answer, and that is listen to the customer. The actual answer has been go shopping pause. somewhere We've else. We've got to pause. We'll be right back. Yes. Yeah, There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. A few years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for being with us and for standing by, as I just suggested. Uh, let's go to Jim listening to us in the great state of Texas. Go ahead, Jim. You're on Beyond the Beltway. Can Hello? you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I, I was prompted to call in because I'm a, one of these so-called people of color. What, uh, what I guess color? In my case, it would be brown. What color are you? Oh, brown. Okay. I'm a Hispanic. Okay. Uh, yeah, Hispanic. And um, I, I, hate, I hate the term, first of all. I'm an American. 
I'm not brown. I'm not white. Doesn't matter. What matters to me is I'm an American. My my father and mother came here first generation. About seventy years ago, they're both gone now, but brought seven kids. Mm-hmm. Each one of us became successful in some way or another. I've I've owned several businesses. I just retired. Mm-hmm. I'm not rich, but I, but I'm not certainly not poor. Okay. And what I found in life, being a little bit over sixty years old now, is that it doesn't matter in the United States of America whether you're brown, black, blue, or purple. What matters is you get off your butt and go out and, and do something for, for yourself and, and work hard, and, and you don't have any problems. I've never felt that I was discriminated against because I was brown. Uh, quite the contrary. I was actually helped and given uh, an opportunity uh, with grants and stuff for minority education, minority grants, minority this, minority that. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand. I just don't understand how anybody could complain about discrimination in this great country of ours. Um, I think it's more of lack of responsibility and not getting off your rear end and, and doing something about life on your own. I think it's a lack of, um, of um, self-reliance, of, of um, uh, taking responsibility for yourself. And I just wanted to call and say that. Stay on the line because I want to engage you in conversation, but I want to yeah. turn to Derek Blakely. Derek, how much of Jim's story is your personal story? The relationship with your parents, I mean, you you probably have friends that are not as successful as you for a variety of reasons. Everybody has that, regardless of their race, color, or creed. Mm -hmm. But my question to you is, how how much of this message that Jim heard from his parents did you hear? Well, I think in... um when you look at anybody who's successful, um, there are many elements that have gone into their success. I had wonderful parents. Uh, they were factory workers who, who moved to Chicago from the south. Uh, they worked at the, uh, for Chicagoans, they worked at the old Western Electric Factory on the west side in, in Cicero. Um, they weren't rich. Uh, but uh, as I always say, I, I had everything I needed and uh, a little of what I wanted. And um, they instilled in me the importance of education, and, uh, and I learned from them the example of hard work. But that doesn't mean that discrimination isn't real. Right. And that doesn't mean that racism isn't real and there aren't people affected by it. Um, there are people who are caught in uh, the cycle of poverty. Uh, we know what that is. Uh, we know how it, it can take people down and combined with a uh, lack of education and, and discrimination, uh, it, can, uh, it can put you in a terrible place. Uh, it doesn't mean that that place is impossible to get out of, but it certainly means that it's harder to get out of uh, without the advantages that I have. Does it give you, and when I say you, I mean not you. I mean, does it give people of color, and I don't like that term either, uh, Jim, but does it give people of color... Yeah an excuse why their life is not as successful as they would like it to be because either they didn't get the message that your parents and Jim's parents offered or, frankly, they they just weren't, they may not have been smart enough, they may not have been clever enough, they may have run into a competition that they didn't expect, and it, it may not have nothing to do with racism, but racism is a convenient excuse 
for being uh, less than totally successful? Well, I think so. When you when you okay. look at it, uh, I'm sorry. I thought, you, I thought you were asking me. I'm no, sorry. no, no, Jim, yeah. go, you go That's first, okay, and then we'll. And when then you we'll, when you look at the broad sweep, uh, you can tell an individual story. You can look at my story. You can look at Jim's story. But when you when you cut across a broad sweep and talk about um, the disadvantages uh, that Hispanics have, the disadvantages that African Americans have. That's not that's not explainable uh, on an individual level, you know. Um, that's those are societal deficits. I mean, when you talk about African Americans having a family wealth that is ten percent of that, ten percent of that of white families, for uh, in terms of uh, uh, in terms of uh, your wealth. Um, a white family has a dollar uh, for every dime a black family has. Those are actual statistics. Is it? Is it? Is that only because of racism, in your view? And then I want to get Jim's response. It's largely. No. <laughs> it's largely because of racism, or or, or you could say uh, that you know black people are just shiftless and lazy. And I'm not willing to say that. Okay, Jim, go ahead. Uh, your, your responses to the same questions. I speak in generalities when I speak, and one of, one of the weapons that they always use against us conservatives which, um, is that um, I don't claim that everybody's the same. That would be ignorant. Mm-hmm. I am educated. I do have a master's degree. I graduated at the top of my class, computer science, um, so I'm well-educated. And I, thanks to this country that, that I came to, that my parents brought me to. But back to your question involving racism, okay. It's used as a crutch, in my, in my opinion, and not by everybody. I want to make it clear. I'm saying in general, because, and the more they promote it, the more it's being used. And instead of helping these people, you're hurting them. And I'm telling you firsthand, I was an instructor. I, I was sent college to college here in this city. And I was sent also to the housing uh, places where the um, minorities live. Mm-hmm. And they, and when I was trying to get them the idea that they could get out of poverty and, 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 and telling them how I did it, how we did it, how my father did it, and that it's possible and, and not to listen, to, you know, and so on and so forth. What I was mostly confronted with by these people, by these students, was, well, sir, um, you know, the thing is, is uh, if I get a job, um, we're going to lose, uh, my parents won't get um, the Medicare and, and Medicaid and food stamps and, and the housing and, and so on and so forth. I said, yes, I understand that. I said, but it's working against you. You're never, you, don't you want to get out of here and, and make something, have your own business? Don't you go, oh, yes, yes. But, you know, my, my parents, you know, my, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, they were in this housing. In other words, it's, it's been handed down generation to generation to generation, and the so-called help has actually squashed any hopes that they, they could have had. And that actually makes me very mad. And that, and that was and is a government program. Uh, Derek, would you acknowledge that? Well, there is some truth to what yeah. Jim is saying. I recall those stories from uh, when uh, the CHA high-rises were being torn down right. in Chicago, right. uh, which were squalid places, uh, a gang-infested, drug-infested, not well-maintained. But you heard people say, you know, my grandmother grew up here. My, you know, my mother grew up here. 
Uh, I'm raising my children here. I want my you know children's children to to grow right. up here. And you wanted to say to them, no, wait a minute. This isn't what this is what public housing was intended for. It was supposed to be a transition, right. a step, a step up, and then a step out. Right. Um, um, so, you know, that mentality certainly does exist. And by the way, th- those rules were not enforced by government. In other words, those rules that you were supposed to go into a p- public housing project right. for, let's say, six there months not, or a year. There were not time they, limits given. Right. There was and no limits. Because there was no what the people who were living there were saying was, basically, I have squatters' rights. And, you know, yeah. and we were saying, you know, no, you don't. This is, this is rental housing. Yeah. Um, but I, I do not think that that is the mentality of... Uh, most African Americans or most Hispanics, I think they want, you know, want to know the way out. Um, they have not had anyone often to show them what the way out is. Do you think your political leadership? I believe they. they um, I, I'm and sorry, I, mean I, I totally that, disagree they have, because have I, any... I, I, I was there. I was there firsthand. I'm not. I, I didn't hear it from from somebody that heard it from somebody. I actually was there firsthand and witnessed that the majority. I was able to get a couple of them. Thank God, I got a couple of them out of there. But the the, the majority, and I'm talking about 26 different complexes throughout the city. 26 different housing complexes I went to, and this was the 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 theme all along was well, you know, if we do that. We're going to lose this, and we're going to lose that, and we're going to lose that. I go, don't you see what they're doing to you? They're keeping you down. They're not helping you. They want you to stay here the rest of your life and your kids, too. I said, look, don't you want, you know, again, you know, the, the, the have a car, have a house, have a family, you know, and, and all of this. And um, But anyway, um, at that time, I was still allowed to say that. I wouldn't. I probably would not be allowed to say that anymore. But it's so sad, and I think it's a pity. And I th- and I think that they know what they're doing, and I think they're doing it intentionally. I think they're doing it maliciously, and I just had to call it and voice my opinion. When you say what, they, what, yeah, when you right. say they, yeah, who the, are you referring to? The government, the teachers in the schools. Or? Yes, politicians, politicians, and it's all about the vote. Bottom okay. line, it's all, it's about the vote. You vote for me, I'll take care of you the rest of your life. You don't have to worry. And and um, the, the 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 hell with 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 your ability to to get somewhere in life because uh, we need your vote. That's what that's Jim, what we're after. Jim, we've got to move on. Thanks for much for your call. What what city in Texas are you calling from? Border city of El Paso, Texas. El Paso, Texas. Okay. KTSM. Cool. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Bruce Dumont. Back shortly with more. Thank you. Americans use opioids to manage pain. Yeah. Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming, and all-consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. 
And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit MoveForwardPT.com to find a physical therapist in your area. This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. And, uh, uh, Stephanie, you were making a point. Be- no, actually, I wanted to go to Mark about something. Mark, um, the the students that you have, um, and you teach English, right? Rad- radical English? What is radical yeah. English? Critical media, English? Media communications and uh, okay. literature Stephanie wouldn't like. And uh, <laughs> I like of- all literature. I read everything. <laughs> how, ma- how about, uh, how do your students, since you have the, the closest uh, opportunity to have the, take the pulse of students, how do students feel about this controversy that's going on, about, their, about what's being taught to them uh, in this uh, evolving political climate? So um, I don't know if you know, Bruce, but the college, the university where I teach, Calumet College of St. Joseph in Whiting, Indiana, is actually the most diverse college in the Midwest. I did not so know we have, we have students from all, all different backgrounds and, and economic situations. Born-again Christians? So to, you have born-again Christians? Um, there, there are some. There's a whole mixture of religions okay, as well. Good. Right, and, just checking. Um, but the point being that the students who come in uh, into my college, um, to, to the caller's point, Jim, they don't come in with a defeated attitude. They don't come in making excuses based on race or class. They come in hungry for opportunity and, and willingness to learn, but they have a different collection of skill deficits and, and cultural advantages and disadvantages. So, so, but my students are really out of, you know, they don't, they're not in that conversation that, that's, that students in a parochial private school are generally in. Most of my students are coming in and they're unfamiliar with the history of liberal education, meaning the, the liberal education model that goes back to ancient Rome and Greece uh, from, uh, right. from Cicero and, and uh, Aquinas so, and yeah. So Aquinas and that liberal tradition, that, that knowledge, acquiring knowledge, even if it's not practically applicable is, a, is an end in and of itself to be obtained. Yeah. So my students, you know, they're hungry to be taught whatever you're going to give them. And, uh, you know, but they do come in really with more of a focus on economic opportunity. They're there, um, they want their education. And, the, you know, one student told me, he said, Professor, I know you want to talk to me about art, but I've got time to do art when I'm 50. <laughs> right now, yeah. I want to learn yeah. how to make a living. Right, and I said, "Well, you can you can like art now and make a living. Right, right. <laughs> you don't have to defer it, but not a living at art. Yeah, right. Well, um, it's interesting. So, but, yeah, but but a, a, a question uh, on on the subject, let's say of of American history. Now, you're not teaching it, but your 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 students are engaging in it. I mean, Absolutely. do 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 they see that they're at at some important point in uh, in history? And also, uh, you know, when critical race theory is being debated. And uh, you talked about, you know, success. When you teach uh, about uh, the, you know, the making of America and business and the business community in America, uh, do you accentuate the positive or do you accentuate the negative at the college level? So, yeah, I think this is one of the things I'm finding kind of fascinating tonight, which is I don't know why 
ideas or interpretations of history are existentially threatening or or so frightening. Um, you know, my goal is to create critical thinking, media literate individuals who are going to go out and make these discoveries. I, I, I learned from conservative professors and I learned from liberal professors and I became out fine. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, but when we're talking about history, uh, I try to, to represent a, a broad assortment of views in and, and, and our college. We want to um, let the students connect. What I think what's important is that they have to see themselves reflected to an extent in that story. Um, so if you're is telling it, a story of American history, in order for a student to want to learn that history and really enjoy it and internalize it, it has to connect to their experience. And that's the art of teaching, is how do you, how do you tell a story about ancient Greece or Plato and make that relevant to a kid who's trying to get a air in his tire or a ride to work well also but but i don't think we have to go f that far back if we're talking about the role of uh, of business and american industry um sure. is it is it wrong only to focus on their successes or does this have to be broken down into the into the entire educational life of someone. In other words, do you learn or should you learn about all the positive aspects and the aspirational aspects of American business and the development of science and the arts? Should you learn about that in, in, in elementary school and then maybe in high school or maybe midway through high school? Should you start learning about other things that were going on that maybe were not so uh, great, not so great about the country. You know, the the old joke is that you know uh, when you're in grammar school, you think everything in America was right, and then in high school you learn that sometimes they were wrong, and in college you learn that America was always wrong. Uh, I mean, I've heard that you know for right. for decades, and I'm just wondering is 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 there a period in the educational life where only positive things should be taught? I'm going to ask Derek for that. There's no. going to be enough time to catch up and fill in all the grout uh, and some of the dirt. But uh, should it start with the foundation that there were some pretty positive and pretty ingenious people uh, along the way that helped create this country? Well, I think in the lower primary grades, um, you're just trying to establish uh, a kind of a narrative and right. uh, a, a timeline more than anything else. And... Uh, hit important events, and I think... Uh, but only good guys? Well, I, yeah, mostly. I mean, but I think, you know, you... And you get... As you uh, get into the upper primary grades and then in the high school, you, you take a more nuanced view of things because, you know, you're able to understand more, and you're, you, you've, lived, you've lived more, you've seen more, you understand in your own social interactions how how other factors can uh, come into well, the things. Well, the problem with the, 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 the influx of critical race theory is it's, it's, it's not just at the high school. It's, it's coming into the grade schools. I mean, uh, there, uh, there's a grade school, a parochial grade school here in Evanston, that is doing a pilot program where they're doing this, this doctrine starting literally in kindergarten. So kids are being taught in kindergarten right away that America is systemically racist, racist, that how, it is genocidal. How, how is that taught? 
Well, in, in, in sort of age-appropriate ways, for example, just the, uh, you know, uh, the perp, you know, Christopher Columbus coming and that, you know, he, you know, there is this simplistic way of inviting the idea that Columbus came to bring slaves because America was made to start slavery. I mean, it's that simple and basic. And the problem is that if, if we want to look at it and we can have this debate, I'd love to hear Mark's opinion is let's look back at, you know, I mean, we didn't always have public schools. And one of the important features of a public school was also building good citizens. So how do you build, build a good citizenry when you're teaching them that everything around them is wrong and it's dangerous and that, is you know, that, bad things is it, happen? Is it that or is, is it acknowledging that many, many years ago things were not like they are now and there were people many, many years ago that maybe weren't really good guys. Well, and maybe are, some are, of them were Americans. There were, but there, I, I believe, you know, Derek hit this right on the head. There are age-appropriate ways in which this is done. And really, the nuance should should come at a much later stage um, than, than, it's, than what critical race is striving for. Critical race wants to come out, out of the gate right away with basically the college-level concept that America's bad. And people are feeling that. Now, one of the things I want to make clear is I'm not against having critical race discussed in school or taught. And and we could talk about this. I think Mark has a, you know, his school is very different. But when you look at some of these elite North Shore high schools and so on, and you look at the where they're driving their kids, where what the end goal is for a lot of these kids, that is, you know, our elite colleges, you know, Ivy Leagues and so on. Um there is a strong feeling among concern, uh, you know, parents is that those critical thinking skills, if they're not introduced now, then you've just sent kids that are already ready to follow the doctrinaire line when they get to college. And will they learn to be? When will they learn to be critical thinkers? So now is the Let's time. Let's let Mark answer that. To Mark, intro- what's yeah, the introduce answer? it as as a tool. But the pros and cons, which is not being done. Mark, go ahead. So I, I, I think the this is you know as W. B. Du Bois would say that uh, the the work of education is for teachers, but the vision of it is for seers. What what are we going to teach? Who is deciding? Who's making those determinations of what's age appropriate curriculum? For instance, the fact that America was a, a, a the United States was built on a slave economy. Where does that get introduced in an elementary school history curriculum? Um, the, the lynching of African-Americans and Italian-Americans, um, the, the ethnic conflicts, uh, the Holocaust. Um, there, there are appropriate spaces to start introducing students to those ideas. Um, but we can't block what is them it out. in your I don't, view I don't think in uh, what in, in, in your view mark view in in your view mark in your view mark when is it when is it age appropriate to talk about uh, the ugly side of history so you know it, I'm just thinking back to my own public school education and where mm-hmm. did I start encountering these ideas which was so, when uh, it was really junior high 
Um, yeah. It was really junior high when things, uh, when you're watching Night and Fog, you know, documentary footage of the Holocaust, and you're learning about uh, slavery and reconstruction. We've got a pause, right. Mark. We've got a pause back shortly from Evanston. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. To, uh, our good friend uh, who's standing by, Mark Casello. Mark, uh, 10 years from now, will we be talking about the teaching of critical race theory as a political movement uh, that had uh, a, a, a long period of activity in the United States, but it ended up with minimal impact? Or are we going to be talking about a turning point in American education? I think we won't be talking about critical race theory. We'll be talking about the social movements that that are using it as a way to frame the issues and the injustice in society. So we'll be talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, which is informed by critical race theory um, in, in its understanding of systemic racism and how that influences police violence against uh, the communities of color. So, uh, But the critical race theory itself, this debate we're having tonight, will long be forgotten, I think. Will it be forgotten by next week? Yeah, <laughs> potentially. Well, okay. well it, <laughs> so it, we it, should it, put it in the archives because it it's it's truly a historic right. show. I think no one will ever yeah. remember this. Well, I think we're about to get to its peak. <laughs> I, I do agree with Mark that there is there is there is a, a you know it, it's bubbling up. It's, it's it's I think it's going to be reaching its peak. But unfortunately, it'll be interesting to see what this say five year fallout is of it in terms of. Support for teachers, support for, you know, um, these kinds of movements and all of that. It, it will have ripple effects for sure. Do you, do you see it as a direct link to the Black Lives Matter movement or is it, uh, is it not quite a clear line? I don't know if it's a, du- a direct link. I think right. uh, there are some links um, to it. Um, but I tend to agree with what Mark says. I, I, you know, Ten years is a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, I think um, there'll probably be another cherry to pick uh, by that point <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in education, in politics, and in, in everything else. Will it be a political issue in 2022? Yes, it will. It will very much because we're seeing across the country um, states are coming out, you know, uh, talking about uh, talking about defunding those, those aspects of education. Um, and it, it really does sort of um, – 
point to the the woke culture that people are feeling right now? It, it points to weaknesses and control of social media. I think it will. It will be a very states t- are either considering or have some states yeah. have passed uh, laws. Banning uh, critical right. race theory. Uh, I think we're up to about 20 states that are considering or mm-hmm. have banned it. And, um, and you know, this, which is dangerous in and of itself. I agree. Banning any kind of thought uh, in is, an educational institution right. where I, various ideas are right. supposed to be. I agree. It, it should be present in the classroom, but it should be taught not as the only way to look at something. But as a way, because, you know, we need to be able to sift through all ideas, good and bad, and know where the criticisms are. We're not going to learn and any more about history. Be, you, think it, you think it could be done at the high school level? It shouldn't wait until college. I think it should definitely be uh, done at the high school level in the right classes. Mm-hmm. You know, not in a theology class where it's being taught as morality, for example. Mm-hmm. But it should be taught maybe in a history class or a civics class or a government participation class. I mean, there are classes where understanding, um, you know, different ways of looking at history we have is a, important. We have a short time left, and I want to ask you quickly, uh, how do you feel about the current makeup of the committee that's going to be looking into what happened on January 6th, Stephanie? Are you happy with would, the way it's configured would, at the moment? Would, I, you mean the kid- committee that was not approved? Is that yeah, the one? Yeah. The uh, the five and five? Yeah. Oh, I don't have a problem having it five and five. Do you want to know what happened? I have a problem happened? with other things. I, I do, I do want to know what happened, and I want everybody else to know what really happened. And I don't want, um, and I want people to know where the media has lied. And I want to know, and there are good questions I think that we all have um, that should be unearthed. Derek, I don't I have, get, I, wanna, I don't have confidence that they'll, they'll do it. Though. I want to get Derek's response. How, how important is it that uh, we do a deep dive on what happened on January 6th? I think it's very important um, just to get to the, the heart of the matter to, um, and to find out um, all the factors involved. I think it's a shame that the Republican leadership uh, wants to put a brick on it. Um, and um, Do you understand why? Yeah. Yeah, I believe because uh, they're trying to protect uh, President okay. Trump. I mean, it's very oh, simple no. why. I, I, and um, mm. uh, any other explanation just doesn't make sense. Mark, uh, yeah. what do you think about uh, the, the current uh, plan? Yeah, I, I think it's a bad move for the Republicans to, to uh, Mitch McConnell to try to shoot down this commission because – then we're going to be back to the to the Nancy Pelosi and the House commissions um, starting up. Or, you know, the, if the Democrats want to keep this issue in the foreground, they're going to find a way to do it. So it'd be they much will. better to just jump on board, try to make this right for history and get that bipartisan commission established. But there's no yeah, doubt in your mind that the Democrats are going to try to uh, uh, Use you know, puff it, yeah. this up politically. Uh, absolutely. You know what, Mark? You you convinced me. Maybe the Senate should do it just so they can keep it from getting crazy in the House. I actually could see that. I would I would yeah. be on board with that idea if if yeah. you could control the House, use it to control the House. I don't know that we can. It, what, they they want it too much. What impact will it have on the evolving face of the Republican Party, Stephanie? Um, I think it will have very little. Um, because despite the media narrative, we are not a party divided about, you know, whether we have worship at the, 
at the uh, altar of Donald Trump. No, because you point kicked is, out the, the one, point is, one pro- we Trump have, critic that we was have in ideas, the Republican leadership. You know, we have um, fundamental... It's like the Communist Party. You, ta- you want to control the narrative and, 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 and squelch on, speech. On what's, it, what's good about this country than the Democrats, and we'll continue to... It's Politburo-style conformity enforced from the top (laughs) of the GOP, and it's a shame. But if you're the leader, you better turn around and make sure people are following you, or else you're not really a leader. Well, the leader lost the election, he lost the Senate, and he lost the House. That's a heck of a, a track I'm, record to be to I'm, be leading from really? behind. I'm talking about Liz Cheney, though. Liz oh, if, she, oh yeah. if she's in leadership, isn't part of the definition of leadership? You better follow follow the bosses, or step aside and tell the and good turn s- around and turn around and see if there's anybody following right. you. And, and explain our positions and tell our tell everyone about our good ideas. We've got to go. We've got to go. Our thanks to Stephanie Hitt and Derek Blakely. And to Mark Casello, I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night from Evanston, Illinois. It's so funny, Derek, because I only just met you this summer, but I mean... What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games. But I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope. Our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. 
When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership.